13, and I better put on my glasses or I'm in trouble here. You've, you've heard this one before. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He now showed the disciples the full extent of his love. It was time for supper, and the devil had already enticed Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to carry out his plan to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel he had around him. When he came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, why are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now why I'm doing it. Someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, but if I don't wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just, not just my feet. My original intention this morning had been to do what I usually do, which is respond to a question that comes to me from one of you in the community. And we'll do that next time around, I suspect. But I had a rather moving experience the other day, kind of a profound moment for me, that I decided I needed to share with you. hope you don't mind. In some ways, it wasn't much, this experience. It was on the surface just a talk with a friend. Nothing spectacular. We were at a conference together in Washington, D.C. only a week or so ago. And if you've been in Washington of late, you know that the aftermath of September 11th is all around you there. Barriers now stand where open walks once were. And the Capitol and the White House look very wrong, to be honest with you. Not easily accessible to the citizens who own them but on the defensive, prepared for war, in a state of war, actually. And the new look tends to color everything, at least it did for me on my visit. Anyway, I was talking with a friend, and at some point in our conversation, he made this rather arresting comment. Stan, he said, we're not going to win this war. And then he stopped, and I waited. And when nothing else came out of his mouth, I responded with, what are you talking about? as if my ears had betrayed me. We're not going to win this war, he said again, rather softly. To say that I was stunned is an understatement. My friend is a gung-ho patriot. He puts flags on his windows, cries when someone sings God Bless America, and never waffles in his support of the red, white, and blue. So what was he saying anyway, I thought to myself, and why? Which, of course, is the question I asked him. What provoked your conclusion? And then he asked me another question to which he knew the answer. Stan, he said, have you been to Europe lately? Yes, indeed, I responded. Was there last summer, Italy to be precise, Rome, Florence, Venice, been to France and England as well. What's your point? Rome, he said. That's good. What did you see there? What's it full of? Italians, I said. <laughs> Funny, he said. What else? The Vatican, I said, Sistine Chapel, the Colosseum. The Colosseum, he cut in. Notice anything about it? 
Anything strike you? Well, yes, I said, it's big. It was rather hot as well the day I went there, and I don't, didn't much like the cassette that described the thing since I seemed to be always in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> Stan, he cut in. What were they doing in the Colosseum? Were they playing games, riding horses, marching in full regalia, feeding Christians to the lions? Were they doing any of those things, did you notice? At this point, I knew we had a genuinely weird conversation. I was in one land, he was in another. I've concluded that on such occasions, it's a good idea to keep one's mouth shut and ears open, which I did. Of course not, he said, answering his own question. The Colosseum is a ruin. There are lots of ruins in Rome and throughout Europe and throughout the world. And they testify to the rise and fall of past civilizations. And they also give witness to the fact that we are going to lose this war someday. Not today, probably. Not in the next decade, most likely. But at some point in some decade or century, we will lose the war, some war. America, too, will rise and fall. We're not forever. He stopped there and looked out over the Washington skyline pensively, and I could tell that we had come to a resting place and not a talking place, a moment to think, in other words, which I did pretty deeply, in fact. The funny thing is, had he made his comment any other time but now, it would have had almost no effect. If he'd simply said, America will rise and fall, and had it had it been last summer, I would have yawned, slapped him on the back, and said, what's for dinner? Of course, America will come to dissolution. That's obvious, but not now, and not for a long time. That's certainly not worth worrying about. But after September 11th, the comment took on a whole new meaning. In the first place, it seemed almost unpatriotic to me. You don't talk about defeat when your country's gearing up for war. That's a given. But you especially don't do it when you're a patriot and a true blue flag-waving American. Even if you thought we might lose the war, you wouldn't say such things. Under any circumstances, undermines esprit de corps. So why was he saying it, I thought to myself. If the timing's so bad, why was he making the comment at all? I got my answer only a few minutes into the silence when he began whistling a tune, which I won't whistle for you because I can't, but which went like this. Than Jesus' blood and righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Then all of a sudden, lights went on, bells started ringing, and I realized what was happening. He wasn't talking to me. He was talking to himself. And he had just come to the realization, flag-waving patriot that he was, that his faith was not ultimately in a flag or a country or anything else other than Jesus, his rock, on which he could stand forever. And it was a simple thought, kind of obvious and kind of profound at the same time. And because of who he is and how he delivered it, his message packed a wallop, to me anyway. And I knew I had to talk with you about it. Why? Well, in the first place, it kind of interweaved itself with some thoughts I've had of late, which are on a related theme. Two thoughts, in fact regarding September 11th. 
The first is how easy it was for the terrorists to do what they did, in part because of the kind of world in which we live. We are in an interconnected world, commingled by technology and communication. And that fact makes us vulnerable. I don't think I need to give lots of examples here. Simply the fact that there are relatively small devices called nuclear weapons which can blow up entire cities sort of makes the point. But we have also come to depend on all this technology to help us live. And it's good. And we enjoy it. And all of it is extraordinarily vulnerable to sabotage. You cut the right wire and half the nation blacks out. You smuggle in the right suitcase and, well, I'll not go there. The point is we're vulnerable. That's the first thought. Shouldn't be a surprise, really. That's the way we are, actually, we human beings. We're all vulnerable in any culture at any time. Life is short, four score and ten at best. And it's easily snuffed out in a moment. But the second thought had to do with these men, these terrorists, small in number, who decided to give up their lives in order to snuff out the lives of many others. And here for me, and I've mentioned this before, I can't get it out of my head, but there's amazement all around. I'm amazed that they could rationalize this act and call it good for one thing. Sin is deception at bottom, but here you had about as much deception as one can imagine. But one can conclude, when one can conclude that giving up one's life to kill innocent men, women, and children, that that is heroic, well, that's deception on a grand scale. But I'm also amazed at their commitment in the midst of this deception. People do not give up their lives easily. It's not a natural instinct. But here you had a few folks so committed to their cause that they were quite willing to do just that. But notice something else as well. Notice how much they were able to accomplish for that reason. Only a few men, a handful actually, able to grab the attention of a world and bring a nation to a halt and then into a war, the most powerful nation on earth, the end of which we've not yet seen, I don't think. Which is the point. Notice what a few committed people can do if they are really dedicated to their cause, even against a nation such as ours. It reminded me of a few other men, 12 to be precise, at another time, who were on the other end of the spectrum of goodness, who lived in the midst of the Roman Empire in a forsaken land called Judea, who were not particularly well known, who lived fairly short lives, save one, who followed a man named Jesus, and who put down the foundations of a faith that not only outlasted Rome, but a good many civilizations since. These mild-mannered fellows were called disciples, and in faithfulness to Christ, they turned their world around, not by killing others, but by allowing themselves to be killed, actually, as was their Jesus, in order to proclaim the good news. Which brings me to you, my charge, and my friends at this moment in time, to whom I am responsible to bring the truth as I know it. And this is the truth I bear to you today. We are at the cusp of a moment, a pretty important moment in the life of our culture, I think. I don't know where it's going, obviously. I simply know that it's a somewhat defining moment. At least that's my guess. 
But here's the other part about which I am also fairly confident. You have been given a very strategic part to play in it at a strategic time. Why? Because you have been given the truth of Christ, for one thing. Precisely the same thing the first disciples were given. And because you have been given it now, at this time, in this place. And I guess more than anything, I just want to say this morning, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss the moment. Don't miss the education in the first place. Westmont was made for this moment, I think. But don't miss the opportunity for which your education was designed. It's funny, but while I was working on this talk, two things happened that sort of crystallized the moment for me. The first was a student who dropped by my office, doesn't matter who, who was discouraged about an incident that occurred in chapel a week or so ago. I didn't see it, so I can't describe it in detail. But I gather that one student was rather tired during the chapel hour and decided to bring his or her sleeping bag into the gym, crawl inside, and take a nap during chapel. His discouragement came from the disrespect shown, from the lack of civility, and from the rudeness of the action. But my reaction was a little bit different. I call it sadness more than anger, pain more than disappointment. It was the simple fact that someone, for whatever reason, was missing out, missing the moment, missing the opportunity. Now, obviously, I don't know what was happening in this incident. And I also know that this is an isolated case. Frankly, I love speaking in chapel because you are the best audience around. And I've done lots of this in lots of chapel talks at lots of colleges. On the whole, most of the time, you are respectful to the speaker and listening with your ears as well as your heart. I invite people to chapel locally, not just because I want them to hear who comes to speak, because I want them to see you and be with you. You're an inspiration. Usually. But not always. Sometimes when you're sleepy, the head drops. Or when you're nervous about an upcoming exam, the book opens. Or when you're not sufficiently pleased with the style or content of the speaker, the conversation begins. And versions of that can occur in the classroom or on the athletic field, or anywhere else learning is supposed to take place. And sometimes it's not even noticeable, of course. It's open eyes coupled with a dulled mind, a peaceful composure coupled with a stress-filled life. There are multiple versions of pulling a sleeping bag over your head, but they all come down to the same thing, I think, missing the moment, missing the moment. The second thing that happened was that I went to chapel the next day. It was 10.30, obviously. It was Friday. It was last Friday. And I was home where I belonged, not in Washington anymore, nor any of the other places that this job frequently takes me. And when I'm in here, when I'm here, I'm tried, I try to be in chapel. Sit right down there, by the way, most of the time, if I can. I do that because I like to sit in front. You know, I can see what's going on, for one thing. Eyes and ears start going at my age, so I need help, so I sit in front. And I've told a few of you this who pray for me on a regular basis. If you come to chapel and you don't sit me, see me sitting right here in the front, 
that probably means I'm someplace else, representing the college in some way, doing my job, all of which is good, but not as good as being here with you, which is the best. So if you look down in the front row, and I'm not here, would you just say a prayer for me? There's a good chance that I need it. Thanks. Anyway, last Friday, I was home, so I went to chapel. But when I walked into the gym, there were no chairs because this was the International College Day of Prayer, which meant I couldn't sit in the front row because I don't do the floor anymore. That's another age thing. Can't squat. My squatting days are over. So I sat in the bleachers over there someplace and was confronted by a chapel service largely designed by students which was doing exactly the thing I was thinking I needed to do this morning. Challenging, students challenging other students to seize the moment to follow Christ in this generation, in these days. And of course, my first thought was, they just stole my chapel talk. (laughs) You know, you've been cut off at the pass. And more than that, they've done it much better than you could ever do it. Always easier to hear a challenge from a peer anyway. Back to the drawing board. But then the chapel service ended with a foot washing of all things, something I hadn't done in years. And I, along with a good number of faculty and staff, grabbed a bucket of water and a towel and washed students' feet. And I think it was one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen. Faculty and staff lined up on the floor, encircling encircling the bleachers on their knees, washing the feet of their students. I'll hold that picture in my brain forever, I'll tell you that. Along with another moment, when I was washing the feet of a particular student, doesn't matter who, who asked me a question just about the time I was pouring water over his or her feet. So, Dr. Gady, student said, why did you become president? And it was asked with a smile, sort of a time filler and hearkening back to my last chapel talk when I talked about my own journey to the presidency. And, of course, that's a question that usually takes a bit of time to answer because there's the story about my journey and my life. But not this time. This time the answer was easy. Why did I become president? So I could do this, I said. I'm here to wash your feet. That's why the rest of the faculty and staff are here, too. Every one of them. That's why your professors are here. That's why your RDs are here. That's why your coaches are here. That's why Ben Patterson is here. That's why Stan Gady is here. We're here to wash your feet, to prepare you for your journey so you can leave this place refreshed and renewed, ready to do the work that God has called you to do in these days, in this generation. Serving others, in other words, as you have been served, washing the feet of those whom God has placed along your path. And it will only be for a time, just a time. In a few days, a few short days, you will be back on the road again. And you will know then what I hope you know now, that this is a time like you will never have again in your life. Guaranteed. Promise. You won't have foot washers like these again. That's a promise. But nor will you have the time to enjoy it and appreciate it and revel in it as you can do now. Ask your parents. Ask your friends who've gone before. You will never again have so much time set aside for the pure joy of learning 
than you have right now. Don't miss it. Don't miss the moment. There's too much at stake in your life and in the lives of those around you. I began this talk with the story of my friend in Washington who made the very simple observation that this kingdom is not forever, that we are vulnerable, that the kingdoms of this world are a passing phenomenon. The world we serve has two answers to that problem. One is that you pull the sleeping bag over your head and pretend it isn't so. The other is to fight like crazy to protect, protect the kingdoms you know in the hopes that they might last forever after all. Ignore Carthage, ignore Rome, ignore every history lesson you've ever learned in your life and fight for your life for about, oh, four score and ten, maybe. Those are not good options, not good options. And you, you know that, which is why this is your moment, you precious few, 1,200 students in the hills of Montecito. You know the truth, and the truth can set you free, free of fear on the one hand and free of false hopes on the other. Free, in other words, to build your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, the only rock, the only foundation on which you can stand forever. Do that. Do that for yourself, certainly, but do it for the world you serve as well. I came to this talk this morning with only one thought, one burning thought, and it was something of a revelation for me. It was simply the fact that you, you are our future. Not in the obvious sense that you will be moving into positions of leadership someday because you're bright and well-educated, I mean in the deeper sense that you have a perspective and an understanding and a truth that the world does not have, does not have, which is why this is your moment, if you will take it. I've told you before, but I like the fact that we have 1,200 students at Westmont, good size in the first place for a liberal arts college, but a continual reminder to me of the parallel between the 12 original disciples whose feet Jesus washed and the 1,200 students whose feet we symbolically and literally washed last Friday. Like the original 12 disciples, you don't know precisely where the Lord will be taking you. Patmos or Rome, Santa Barbara, the Middle East. But like the original 12, you have the possibility of revolutionizing your world. Same knowledge, the same spirit, the very same Lord. And sometimes, well, sometimes the same impulsive inclinations. Like Peter, some of you are so anxious to get on with the project that you can hardly sit still. No, don't wash my feet, never. That's my job, let me do it. And it is all we can do to get you to sit down. Have a seat, Peter. It's time for you to be served, for you to be prepared, for you to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in these days. But then when you do it, you Peters, well, it's not only wash my feet, but my hands and head as well. And you, you Peters, well, you are your professor's delight. Eager learners in a sleeping bag age. But more importantly, you are the Lord's disciples. And on you, the church of the 21st century will be built. Judas was one of the 12 as well, which means that not everyone will get it. That's a given. And it's also part of the plan, as is the replacement, no doubt, having a Damascus Road experience at this very moment at Stanford, 
or even Wheaton, perhaps. That's a joke. <laughs> sort of. The point is, other disciples will join you down the road from other places to accomplish God's purpose in God's time. The truth is, your being here doesn't guarantee a thing. It's only an invitation, an opportunity for a time, a very short time, to prepare you for the time to come. And whether you take it or throw it away for 30 pieces of silver is entirely up to you. Entirely up to you. I leave you with a story this morning, a picture really, that will forever be lodged in my brain. It was the face of the first student whose feet I washed last Friday, over on the corner of the bleachers, right over there. And as I washed her feet, she began to cry, as did I. And she couldn't stop, nor could I. The water flowed on her feet and in her eyes. And do you know why? Because she got it. That's why. And so did I. My hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. O oh, Father, our Father, you who art in heaven, hallowed, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come today. Thy will be done by us today. Those of us here at Westmont, just as it is done by those who surround you even now in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, what we need food for our stomach and soul and heart and head. And forgive us of our sins against you as we do the same for those who have wronged us. And lead us, Father, lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we will remember that thine is the only kingdom, the only power, and the only glory, which is worth a hoot, much less forever. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great four-day.